0: Thanks for listening to the eighth episode of the Armenian Music Podcast. I'm Rafi Minashian. Today's episode is entitled Of Memory, Music, and the Armenian Diaspora: My Conversation with Sylvia Alajaji. <laughs>
1: Im nu nein paat Ies dara. Yes man, Nune Nune answer. Nu ne, nu ne, nu ne are in sila. Nu ne, nu ne, in sila. Anti berem shashaderi. facă scârul și nu
0: Just listening to Adis Harmandian's Nune, which was originally released as a 45 single in Lebanon in the 1960s. This version can be found on a compilation album from 1988 called Greatest Hits, Grand Success on the Voice of Stars label. Before we get to my conversation with Sylvia Alajaji, I wanted to say thanks for listening in. I made a decision early on to reject the concept of monetization with regards to this program. The last thing I wanted to do was interrupt these great guests with dumb advertisements for a few bucks, and we'll keep it that way. If you like the program and want to share it with others, that'd be great. Keep hitting the subscribe button so you get the latest episodes when they're released. Dr. Sylvia Alajaji is an ethnomusicologist and an associate professor and chair of the music department at Franklin and Marshall College in Pennsylvania. She is currently a Dumanyan visiting professor in Armenian studies at the University of Chicago. She's also the author of a book entitled Music and the Armenian Diaspora, Searching for Home and Exile, published by Indiana University Press in 2015. Sylvia grew up as an ethnic Armenian in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is focused on Armenian music within the context of acts of preservation, erasure, and recovery in the Armenian diaspora. Our conversation was recorded on August 15th, 2020, using Skype audio. Here's my conversation with Sylvia Alajaji. Sylvia Alajaji, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you, Rocky.
0: Hey, uh, Sylvia, before we get into your book, um, what I wanted to ask you straight away was what it was like growing up as an ethnic Armenian in Oklahoma.
2: That's such a great question and um, the best part whenever I talk to people about this is like their initial reaction to when I say that I grew up in Oklahoma because it's just so weird to think about Armenians being there. But in many ways, although I felt so isolated and just longing for like my family who was, at you know, when I was growing up, most of my family was in Beirut, but I had cousins, you know, in like Chicago and New York and, and some in Los Angeles. And um, as much as I wished so much I was around them, one of the weird benefits of growing up in such an isolated community is that the few Armenians that did live there, they became my family. Like I had all these tantigs and and ammos and and, um, they were my surrogate parents, my surrogate grandparents. And so I grew up with an enormous amount of love. And so... Whenever, you know, my, my memories of Oklahoma are so um are so mixed, you know, I I I didn't grow up feeling very accepted necessarily, especially as the oldest child of two very new immigrants um to the state. Um, but then when I really think about it, I, I found find myself to be so incredibly lucky to have had the community that I did and that I had just this amazing, uh, amazing group of people who, most of whom have left now have gone to Los Angeles and some of them have gone to Los Angeles and others have gone to other parts of the country. Um, but yeah, so it was both very, very difficult, but also very, very, uh, I don't wanna say easy, but it was very, there was, there was a lot of love, you know, and, um, and that part of it, I think um, I would, uh, I feel just so blessed to have, to have experience. So yeah, so there is this weird feeling that I have because out of this isolation came this community that I, I still um, remember so so incredibly fondly.
0: You know, the reason that I asked that question, uh, Sylvia, is because for a lot of us that are diaspora Armenians that grew up in the United States, you know, bringing uh, Doma or homeless or um, these Middle Eastern kind of cuisines to school before it became very fashionable, and people didn't understand what it was. Um, you know, how how difficult was it to maintain your ethnic identity uh, in a, in an area, especially in Oklahoma? I grew up in Illinois, yeah. uh, but in Oklahoma, where you know, I mean, there other than probably your family and a few friends, it was very very difficult, probably for you to to maintain that identity. Or was it? Or was it difficult? I'm not sure. Was it?
2: Well, you know, no, that's such a great question. And we were able to maintain it, but in in a very interesting way, though, because one thing that I don't think uh, a lot of people know about Tulsa is that there's actually a very, there's uh, actually a not insignificant Arab community there. And given that my parents had come from Beirut and that a number of the other Armenian immigrants in town had come from, you know, like Aleppo or Iran, Um, sorry, they're not, Iranians aren't Arab, but still like there was this, you know, there was this other community there in Tulsa that we were really able to, um, to, uh, find affiliation or find, um, affinity with. And that helped a lot. So like when we would eat our food, we would go to like, or when we were going grocery shopping, we would go to the Middle Eastern groceries and um and so, through that, we were really, really able to uh, maintain a sense of identity. Um, and so, yeah, so in in terms of food, we were really able to, to find ways of continuing, you know, the ways of, you know, that way my parents grew up and, and that sort of thing. And given the tightness of the community, I mean, we, you know, we would get together once a week or a few times a month and, and, and the exchange of food and, and song and, and memories, you know, was, was a very, very common, uh, part of our, our get togethers. So, so it was difficult in that, you know, I didn't have a school, we didn't have a church, we didn't have like, um, you know, uh, I didn't have necessarily like a bunch of Armenian friends outside of, you know, this very small community, none of them went to my school. So in terms of like that kind of my peer group, I didn't really have that. But in terms of like continuing this, this sort of cultural connection, we were able to do that in, in our own way. Um, and again, like a lot of that came out of being able to find these affiliations with the other um, ethnic minorities, um, particularly those from the Middle East um, in, in Tulsa. Now that's not to say that, you know, a birth order has a lot to do with sort of um, our experience of Oklahoma. Like if you look at me and my siblings, I was the oldest. And then my sister is in the middle and my brother is the youngest. And there's eight and a half years between me and my brother. And by the time my brother came along, you know, we had assimilated a lot more than they than than we had when I was the only one. And so I have a number of, you know, sort of traumatic memories of like my parents packing my lunch and nobody in school knowing, you know, what it was that I that I had brought with me. And I would go home and just beg my parents, like, please don't put chayar in my lunch anymore. Like, don't give me a whole cucumber, (laughs) you know. And now, yeah, now it's crazy. Like, pita bread is so, you know, so common and hummus, everybody, you know, eats that. And so, like, you know, when I would bring that to school, I would get ruthlessly, you know, made fun of and um but you know it changed so much by the time my my brother came around so yeah so it's very interesting but the funny thing rafi though is that like so in the the other thing that comes out of isolation and not you know sort of knowing what other armenians are doing is that you grow up with this sort of idea like oh this is what it is to be armenian this is what it is to you know this is what we're all like and then you get out there and you meet other people who grew up in a, in, in larger communities like in Chicago or in L. A. or you know in New York or Detroit, and you're like, oh my God, like I really am I even Armenian? Like I don't really know how well I fit into to these sorts of other communities, you know. So, so it was sort of like in the in growing up, you know, it was what I knew, and and I found a way to navigate navigate that. And, um, but then it was when I left that I started asking these questions, like, what does it mean to be Armenian? Because what I'm seeing and what I'm coming up against here is so different than what I experienced growing up.
0: Sylvia, did these experiences of, um, I I guess, semi-isolation, uh, did that have a role in you becoming an ethnomusicologist?
2: Yeah, that's, yeah, I it really, really did. Now, again, like the oldest daughter of of two immigrant parents, like I was going to be, I was going to be a doctor. <laughs> and so like my parents were so, uh, you know, so excited for me. And so, so just like ready for me to, you know, live out this, this American dream. And I told them I wanted to be an ethnomusicologist. And um, yeah, I'm sure you can imagine what kind of reaction I got uh, when I told them that, but yeah, I, it, Rafi, it, I cannot, and that's why I bring up these experiences often when I'm talking about my work, because it would be such a lie for me to pretend that this experience that I had didn't play into why I chose to become an ethnomusicologist. Um, I think anybody who grows up feeling isolated and then feeling like you're not the thing that you're supposed to be, or somebody's telling you you're not you know, the thing that you're supposed to be you know, you start to ask yourself, why? How is it that this has that that this has taken place or th- that this is happening? Why is this happening? And so that's happening simultaneously to just my growing love of music. And I've shared this before, but whenever I think about like the happiest moments of growing up, you know, growing up, it was difficult because like I've mentioned a few times, you know, my parents had newly come from Beirut. Beirut was ensconced in the Civil War. Um, you know, there was a lot of sadness and there was a lot of loneliness. And, and the happiest memories that I had were when we were just dancing together, when we were listening to music. And, and so, so music became sort of a safe way of at first, like safe way of engaging with these bigger, more complicated questions of identity, you know, it was like, okay, music was like this, this this area of safety for me, this area of happiness, this area of memory. And so it was through my relationship to music that I started to sort of tiptoe into these broader questions, more complex questions about um about identity. And the thing is that, and and I know you know this more than anybody, but ooh, talking with people about music, like you inevitably touch on, you know, the deepest parts of their loves, you know, like, why do you love the songs that you love? What memories do they hold? And so I just found, I just loved talking to people about their music. And, um, and from there, you know, that sort of led me to ask these other questions, um, about, about identity and belonging and, and, and our histories and and that sort of thing.
0: Sylvia. Um. I'm glad that we're kind of setting the stage with regards to your own personal background uh, because we're going to get into kind of a bigger question here and really uh, what I wanted to bring you on for. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. I absolutely loved your book, Music in the I- Armenian Diaspora, which was published in 2015 by uh, Indiana University Press. It's easy to read, it's engaging, it's informative. It's scholarly, but it doesn't have that musty scholarly feel to it <laughs> when you read it. It's, it's really, it, and, and you know what? Others that have read it have said the same exact thing. But it's really interesting because if one were to pick up that book, I often ask people, what is Armenian music? I, I ask them that question straight up and I do it for a particular reason. And if people are looking to pick up your book and get a definition of what Armenian music is. They're missing the point because the twist, right. is, the twist is, it's really what does Armenian music mean to you, and it's how they answer that question. Right. Did you kind of touch a little bit on, on your book as it relates to that? Really, that big question is, what is Armenian music?
2: Right. Right. And and I have to share this with you because um, I'm 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 writing a small thing about it now, but part of where that question came from because I came from me like when I started this work as, in my dissert, uh, as part of my dissertation, you know I would go to these interviews and this relates to what I was saying about you know sort of my conception of Armenianness growing up in this very isolated community in Tulsa. I would go into these interviews with sort of this very sort of um, dichotomized understanding of Armenianness. like there was what I grew up with, you know, the the ness that I grew up with. And then there was the Armenian-ness that I would like read about in like encyclopedias or textbooks, or especially in like musicology, when you would look up Armenia and like the world music textbook. And like, you'd see these things written about, and I'm like, wait a minute, that was that's not at all like what I grew up with, you know? And so I already had this sense of like, there being this sort of like private inner way of being Armenian, and there was this sort of public way of being Armenian. And so I would go into these interviews, um, you know, when I was starting work on my dissertation, what eventually became, you know, a a version of which became my book. And, you know, I would ask, like, about any genre, like, like, whatever, I would say, you know, what do you think of this? And the person that I was speaking to sort of had the impression that I was writing this dissertation on Armenian music. And they would say, why do you want to know about that? And I'd say, well, you know, this is my research. And they were like, but that's not armenian so why do you want to talk about that that's not armenian and i heard that enough times that i i was just like i started to really become i started to think like okay this is the this is my work right here like where is this coming from that we are calling certain things armenian and calling certain things not armenian you know and and so what where is that Yeah, this is not a question that has an answer, just like you said, you know, but I think in in asking the question, I think it's incredibly revelatory um, how people answer that. And the other thing that I like to pursue or like that, that I like to interrogate is why, like, so if I say Armenian music to you and the first thing that comes to your mind is khachadurian, let's say. You know, I want to know how did that happen? Like, where did, where did that come from? That Khacha is like what you associate with Armenian music, you know? And not saying that there's no right or wrong there, you know what I mean? But like, how is it that certain things are able to, you know, be elevated to the status of, yes, this is Armenian versus something that is special to the Armenian community, but that we don't want to claim as being Armenian, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I think. I think Armenian music in, in many ways is, especially with the diasporic experience is you often tell the story about a mixtape that you grew up yeah. with.
2: Yeah. And
0: um, you know, the Armenian music that I grew up with and I've told this on, on some other podcasts is these, these records um, from Melodia from the Soviet Union, um, also on the monitor label. And uh, th- this was what I knew as Armenian music to the, to the east coast then there was music that was being labeled armenian uh with the oud the dumbag this is kind of the more ottoman influence and then when i went to la and and watching harut pambukjan and some other kind of pop stars i was completely confused and um and that is one of the reasons why i've kind of started my label is to try to Try to figure out what it is that Armenian music is. But I think it has a lot to do with memory and identity
2: yeah. and how
0: we identify to certain parts of our life. How, what do you feel about that?
2: I think I totally, I think you're totally right that it has a lot. Well, see, this is where it gets complicated. Like, there's the question, there's the answer that we'll give when we're speaking to each other, right? There's like the answer that I'll give, like, this is what I felt was Armenian to me, or, and then there's what you had in your experience, you know, Um, and then like, if we speak to an Iranian Armenian or, you know, an an Armenian who, you know, is from the country of Armenia, right? Like we'll be able to have this very wide ranging discussion when it's among us, but then what happens to that question when we translate it to the wider world? You know what I mean? Like what gets to carry that mantle? Of Armenian music, when, like, let's say, you know, you and I are, you know, sort of leading, putting on a cultural night where we want Americans to come to our concert, you know, like, what do we put out there as Armenian when the stakes are so high, like when we're trying to get a genocide recognized, when we're trying to make our way as ethnic minorities in the United States, you know, like, what do, how do we present ourselves on the larger scale, on the larger stage? And so, you're absolutely right that you know how we answer this question when you and I are talking to each other for example has so much to do with our memories and our and our di- and our journeys our diasporic journeys and and you know all of that um, but I do think there's this interesting tension that emerges if we took this conversation and and put it you know in a more distinctly american um sort forum. of public yeah public forum exactly yeah. yeah yeah
0: and and you know i have to say that um you know your book features snapshots of mm-hmm. particular communities and music uh one of them being uh, lebanon could yes. you kind of could you kind of go a little bit deeper as to what you found going back to the the land that your parents actually were from as it relates to armenian music because You know, Addis Harmandian and Five Fingers. These are are two bands that I hear about constantly. Uh, But tell me what the scene was like in Lebanon, in Beirut, when it came to music.
2: Right. Well, what's interesting is... So a lot of this, again, like, I have to credit my parents, and especially my dad, like, who brought a lot of these records with him to to Tulsa when when he moved to, to the United States. And um, you referenced this mixtape that I've mentioned before, and there was this mixtape that my dad used to play for us, like, when we would go on family vacations, like, in the car and, and all of that, and it was all these pop songs um, from that he had brought him, with him from Beirut, you know, featuring Adis and and Harud and, you know, the, that kind of thing. And, um, and so, yeah, so the scene in Beirut was really interesting because a lot of these Armenian musicians became popular at first by singing like covers of European or of, of you know, of European songs. And so what was so amazing, and I talk about this in the book, is that there was sort of, again, this sort of dichotomized way of being um, Armenian, you know, like there was like the kind of Armenianness that was being imposed. But then when you would go to your room, like you wanted to listen to the Beatles, you wanted to listen to, you know, things that were not Armenian, you wanted to listen to what was popular at the time. And so this Armenian music scene that grew in Beirut was a way of merging those two those those sort of two different ways of being like the, the sort of you can be Armenian but listen to really awesome pop songs at the same time and that was huge and not only was that huge for the Armenian youth in Beirut but it was also a way of becoming visible in 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 Beirut in some ways because a lot of these songs ended up becoming popular sort of outside the the Armenian community Um, so I think in terms of navigating, especially for the youth in the, this pop scene that emerged in, in Beirut was really integral in helping them navigate their own ways of existing in, um, in Lebanon, you know, where they could be Armenian and they could be Lebanese and they could be, you know, plugged into the sort of pop cultural sphere without having to sacrifice different parts of themselves. And um, but it's really interesting though that like when you talk about Adis Harmandjian, like if you talk about Karun Karun, which is like you know what Armenian doesn't know, Karun Karun, like it's this question of what is Armenian music is really interesting when you look at Karun Karun because like that has become so popular and such a like an an a uh, critical part of of so many of our upbringings. Do we allow that? To, is that Armenian music? It's sung by an Armenian. It's in Armenian. It was created by an Armenian record industry. Um, you know, but when it comes to like the harmonies and 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 everything there, like w- when you really break it down, you know, how did that get to be Armenian music, whereas something else is not, you know. Um, so, yeah, so the scene in Beirut, I think, is just so fascinating on on a number of levels. Um, but again, if we're sort of continuing this thread of what gets to be Armenian music, um, you know, it's really interesting to see sort of how that breaks down when we apply it to this this scene.
0: Well, uh, I think the dirty little secret about Kadun Kadun uh, is that the actual tune may be sourced from an Azeri song. Is that correct? Yes,
2: yes, you're absolutely right. And I guess we the... we
0: shouldn't tell too many people that, right? Yeah. So
2: <laughs> <I know. laughs> well, you know what every what is so fun to do if you're a nerd like I am is is like eavesdrop on YouTube conversations like when you go to these songs that are that are you know uploaded to YouTube the the comments are always so fascinating because like people will be saying no no this is from you know this this comes from such and such song or from my parents village and you know and I had people when I was talking to them because sometimes, you know, again, just like you, I was so glad you said, like, this isn't about finding an answer or finding a right answer, but about, you know, the process of asking the question. And so sometimes I would ask them about Karun Karun and be like, you know, what makes it Armenian aside from, you know, just it being in Armenian and being sung by an Armenian. And they would say oh it's a folk song that um it's a, it was a gomidas folk song and i'm like oh my god like you know the the lengths that people go to 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 claim it as theirs you know um is really interesting but yeah you're totally right like the understanding of karun karun which i i cannot speak to its accuracy or its validity but there is, there are theories out there that it's, it's you know, Azeri and um, which, given what's going on right now, like, you know, between Armenia and Azerbaijan, adds like this whole other layer of like just total messiness, you know. Um, sure does.
0: Sure does. What's Estradaín music?
2: Estradaín music is like boulevardier music, like uh, a serenade, you know, somebody who serenades. And the the roots of it are in the Soviet Union. And so it sort of had this circuitous, circuitous um, route from like the Soviet Union through Armenia and then to Beirut. And um so it was this Estradain genre um that Addis was a part of. And um yeah, so you can find like references to Estradalin in like you know other in other contexts. but it became like a specific thing in um in to the Armenian community in Beirut specifically. And then which ended up, during the Civil War, making its way to Los Angeles, as you mentioned, like when you got there, like that being, you know, that being a huge part of the Los Angeles scene. (laughs)
1: cose se se facero yarjamin tu airumes <laughs> garol garun garune cirun cirun cirune et cose se se facero yarjamin tu airumes charles uneri havada tim yarar ar sugnero avalo se se facera charles As charas shakuas paneera, o su mei herana lumora, essas raras sakun spaneira, osso mei Et ko sep sev acerov, yar janistu ayrumes. Garun, garun, garune, sirun, sirun, sirune. Et ko sep sev acerov, yar janistu Garune, zero sirun, zero, sirun, sirune. It was a set of yard, giant two janitu rooms. Garun, garun, garune, zero sirun, zero, sirun, sirune. It was a set of yard, giant two iron rooms. It was a small arbat and full I'll serve a nero conchumen. Yarra Janice me her on our me
0: For those who don't really understand the significance of Adis Harmanjan, could you expound a little bit more as to what he meant and what was his kind of... um, what was his role in, in in pushing forward? We had kind of mentioned a little bit about, uh, you know, the youth in Lebanon and how a lot of these bands actually kind of spoke to a greater audience. But for Armenians, what does Adis represent?
2: That's a great question. Um, and it's difficult for to take myself out of this question or to take my family's experiences out of this question. And so, um, so if you'll indulge me a little bit of like personal reflection. I think Adis, you know, Adis means so much. The fact that I could grow up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, right? Like without many, without many Armenians around me. And then I could meet an Armenian from pretty much anywhere else in the world. And we had this song in common I think the significance of that cannot be understated. Um, when you're seeking to build community, when you're seeking, especially out of this sort of loneliness and isolation that I felt, like the fact that, you know, yeah, my Armenian probably, my Armenian was not great. Um, I There were so many other places where I wasn't quite Armenian enough, but God, I had the song, you know, like I could dance with you to the song, I could recite every lyric to the song. So the fact that I think one of the big things about Karun Karun, especially if, if um, you know, Karun Karun, for those of you who don't know, like being Adisa's most famous song, um, the fact that that we had that in common, that we could share that and it brought us joy. Um, I think that that's part of what makes it so important. I think one thing that, you know, happens in ethnomusicology a lot is like we like to we talk about music in very very serious terms and um but sometimes what i think we should talk more about is the ways music makes life livable um and i mean that in like the most beautiful sense like when you what brings you joy you know what brings you happiness like being armenian as rafi as i'm sure you know like so much there's so much sadness you know like we the genus whether it's the genocide or our various dislocations and our separations yeah. from our family there's just so much incredible sadness and we're just fighting for recognition all the time we're fighting for visibility you know we we're fighting for you know to create these spaces where we where we belong and and make sense of ourselves but to have these things that just bring us happiness that put a smile on our face that have that has that makes us you know want to keep going i think that is that that we can't make enough of that honestly i know like it's it's we can laugh about karun karun being cheesy or whatever but you know adis gave us a gift in many ways you know now now you know i know like I'm putting a very very positive spin on it because like the the music scene that grew in Los Angeles really did come to sort of dominate like what Armenian music came to be defined as for a long time. So there are a lot of people that you know and I and I do think it's worth going into sort of like finding the sort of Beirut influence a bit problematic. Um, Because it really did sort of, I don't want to say wipe out, but it did really sort of push to the margins, the sort of Ottoman music that was, um, or Ottoman Armenian music that was uh, prominent in a lot of Armenian American communities. So I don't want to, I'm painting a rosy picture here. Um, the truth of it is, is rather is is rather complex, but at the same time, I think we can hold these things in simultaneity, you know, I think we can p- acknowledge that Karun Karun, for example, specifically, and Adis more generally, did a really, really huge thing for the Armenian community um, at large, but at the same time, sort of looking at the tension that it also created with other ways of, of, of expressing Armenian-ness through music.
0: Well, let's get into it. Uh, let's get right into it. So, yeah. so basically, you're setting the scene in the 70s in Beirut. That's mm-hmm. the time frame where Adis basically exploded. Right In the 1980s, the explosion of kind of what is known as the L.A. sound in Armenian music exploded as well, um, really right. kind of led by Harud Pambukchan. Let's go back a little bit, okay? okay? And let's talk about that music that was pushed to the sides and not only a musical um Kind of uh, focus, but also in a political focus. Right. And when I was growing up, uh, the minute that I basically was hooked onto the sound of the oud, the mm-hmm. clarinet, and the doom bag, there was no going back for me. I was just yeah. addicted to the sound. Now, Richard Hagopian was huge uh, on 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 the West Coast in Fresno, and was also huge on the East Coast in certain parts of the Midwest, primarily Detroit.
2: Detroit, when- yeah.
0: When my father overheard me playing um, Richard Hagopian's music, these these are live underground tapes that I, I obtained mm-hmm. um, in Turkish. Um, he absolutely flipped out. I mean, he was yeah, a big time ARF yeah. member. Yes. Um, yeah. He basically, there was no Brady Bunch for me for at least a month. I mean, I couldn't yeah. watch. I couldn't watch TV. He's like, look, you, you're going to play that. You're going to pay a price. <laughs> <laughs> okay? but, 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 more, but more seriously, more seriously, there, starting in the 19, really the late 60s and early 70s and throughout the 70s, um, I don't think it's any secret that those ethnic Armenians who, who sang in the Turkish language were actually threatened, right. um, they were actually threatened. So tell me a little bit about the political aspect of what music brought to the table and just something being sung in Turkish language. And by the way, I have strong feelings about this particular subject. Um, But I want I kind of want to hear what you have to say on this as an ethnomusicologist and who touched upon this in your book.
2: Right. Well, I want to hear what you have to say about it, too. Robbie, do you mind if I ask you, where did your dad, where, where did your dad come, where did he immigrate from?
0: My father was born um, in Baghdad oh,
2: okay. and
0: um, and basically came to the United States in 57 okay. and was a kind of a community leader in Chicago, uh, actually built built that Armenian uh, church in Glenview um, oh, and was okay. part, part of the ARF community uh, there. But I, I think more importantly is that you had these sons and daughters of genocide survivors yes. have an awakening in 1965. Yep. Um, that that basically there was a statement that said, "We're in the state. You don't need to speak Turkish anymore." Right. But then, oddly enough, those genocide survivors did want to speak Turkish.
2: Yes. Yeah. But the sons and
0: daughters didn't. But how did that play out in music and politics during yeah, that time?
2: No- I'm so sorry I'm interrupting you, but yeah, no, totally. Exactly. Like the, and this is, I don't think this is uncommon to trauma survivors. I mean, that first generation is just the, the generation that went through it. I mean, they're just trying to survive, you know, like, and for many of them, like my grandparents, like the Turkish was what they spoke, you know, my grandpa, my, my mom's parents, my dad's parents escaped shortly before the genocide. They escaped to Aleppo and then to Beirut and my mom's side my grandparents were orphaned as as babies and were rescued and sent to an orphanage in Beirut. Um, and so my grandpa, my mom's dad opened a grocery store in one of the historic Armenian neighborhoods in, in Beirut and he did business with everybody. I mean, there was no discrimination. I mean, I don't want to call it discrimination, but he just, you know, he did business with the the Arab, the the Arabs in Lebanon. He He did business with the Turks. Like he would go to Turkey, you know, to get certain goods. And so the first ge- that generation, their relationship to the genocide, you know, they didn't speak about what they had gone through, as I'm sure, you know, like it was it was you know, it was there was, um, it was sort of a shroud of silence around it. And um, but it was up to that second generation to really make sense of what happened. You know, why are we in Beirut? What what is what happened here? What's going on? And so it became sort of like this familial lived thing, you know, that that existed basically within the family confines to becoming more of a political uh, something to be recognized on a political level with that second generation. So so with that second generation, again, I'm speaking more about Beirut, but just like you said, 1965 was this total turning point because that was 50 years after 1915 and sort of globally like there were moves towards recognizing um, the genocide so anyway so that second generation was the one that was really grappling with questions of what does it mean to be armenian and and how do we assert you know our our armenian identity and 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 that sort of thing so you saw a lot of emphasis on language you know not you know le- le- learning armenian um le- reading armenian literature and and that sort of thing and the thing is that one of the ways that that was enacted um, was by the purging of or the attempted purging of like um, the Turkish, you know, the so-called Turkish influence from a lot of our cultural sphere. And so that's another reason why Addis was such a big deal, because like and there is I cite this in my book, but there's a funny newspaper article written about Addis. Um, I think it was in an Armenian paper. I wish I could remember it off the top of my head but where somebody is like saying, thanks a lot, Adis, like you changed our Sunday kebabs. Like we, cu- I couldn't listen to my Turkish music anymore because everybody was like, you don't have to listen to Turkish music anymore. We have Adis, you know? And so, um, so, you know, by purging the Turkish language and Turkish elements from the music, you know, then you could say, no, this is truly Armenian. Like this is ours. We don't have to we don't have to align with our oppressors anymore. We don't have to, we don't have that shared culture anymore. But, you know, you can imagine when the question then, uh, then that I am interested in, both as an on an academic and a personal level, and Rafi, I'm sure you and I share this. It's like, well, when I'm purging that, am I not also purging a part of my my background? You know what I mean, am I not also purging my own identity, like, if I'm happy to relinquish this to the, you know, to the Turkish, to the Turkish people, then, but that's mine too, you know, I mean, and we share that. And so I think it's, it's, you know, I approach this from a place of sympathy and empathy, you know, with, with the genocide being such a significant part of my own background. And so I understand, you know, just that, you know, the, where this is coming from. But at the same time, I do mourn for what we are having to sort of separate ourselves from in pursuit of recognition. I think this is the continuing sort of toxicity of the of the genocide, you know, that it's like we're 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 killing parts of ourselves over and over again. Um, and um, it's it's a very, very difficult thing. So, yeah. So sorry, I'm mandering quite a bit. But to answer oh, it's your question, fascinating. Uh, But to answer your question, yeah, music became totally political. I mean, how can it not? You know, like music is one of the few things when I talk to people about why I chose to focus on music, um, it's because it's one of the few things that 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 travels easily, you know, like you can leave Beirut with nothing, but you always have those songs in your head, you know, you have, and it can be passed on generation to generation, you know, and they're a huge site of capital, you know, like you can make money from this, from setting up record recording industries and studios and, 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 um, and uh, record stores, you know. So music becomes a really interesting site to ask a lot of these questions, and um, it did become quite political, you know. And as you mentioned, like some of these concerts where people were singing in Turkish uh, or singing these old songs, uh, they became sites of, you know, at least like the threat of violence was was often there, you know, and uh, or not maybe not often, but it, it was there and um and i think if people contextualize it they can understand you know just why why this happened <laughs>
0: That I look at this whole situation is, in some ways, in some ways, carrying on, singing what we kind of celebrate as Armenian music in the Turkish language. You, you can make an argument that there's a Stockholm syndrome element to this. Okay, you, mm-hmm. you can make that argument. At least I can make that argument. But you know, when you smell something, it, it brings you back to a certain memory, and when you when you hear something, there's a, there's a sonic trigger. In totally music that brings you to a memory and to a place. So when I when I hear a lot of this kef music that I grew up on from 19 on, I'm not thinking so much that, oh man, I feel so guilty because this is in Turkish. I think about the joy and the yeah. togetherness and and the love. Let's say that you felt when you were in when you were in Oklahoma, when you were listening to this mixtape, that's where it does bring me. But from yeah. an academic point of view, from a societal point of view, from an Armenian music industry point of view, those are all different questions. But, yes. um, but I think, I think, uh, and I defer to you as the, as the scholar here, but I, I think that a lot of people really kind of emphasize the language a little bit too much mm-hmm. uh, and really forget about what it means, what that music means as, as identity and memory and, and just kind of and happiness, I think, and bringing people That's together. Cool.
2: Totally, yeah. And you're right, though, about the emphasis on the language. And, and the thing, I guess, is that it's the easiest. You know what I mean? Like, if, if like, we took a Turkish, you know, if we took a Turkish song from, I, again, even just calling it Turkish, like, if we, if we took a song that was originally in Turkish and sang it with Armenian words, you know, how much, how how what would the would there be backlash you know there would there be the same backlash as like if it was in turkish you know what i mean like we the the language is the easiest part to pick out you know and then on some on on a certain level maybe for people who know a little bit more about music like they might hear the oud right and and um maybe certain people will say oh wait a minute you know why are we using the oud you know that's not you know is that armenian is that not armenian you know totally discounting the fact that Armenians in the Ottoman Empire played a big role in the, in, you know, making ouds and, 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 you know, like that kind of thing. And so the, the emphasis on the language I agree has been prominent. um, but I think it's because that's sort of the easiest thing to, to sort of focus on. Um, and, and again, though, but, you know, it's interesting because we're talking about a dispute that happened at a very specific time period. So we're talking about a dispute that really began to take place when the Beirut Armenians started to immigrate to the United States. And so you saw this clash between like the American Armenians that had been here for generations and who had their own conceptions of what it is to be Armenian and how you express that culturally. And then here come the Beirut Armenians who have their own conceptions of Armenianness and how you express that culturally. And then a little bit later on you had Armenians from Armenia come in after the breakup of the Soviet Union, and so you know, with all of these different, you know, ways of being Armenian, meeting and 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 being in tension with one another, um, it, you know, it really did. I don't know how to how to to uh articulate this but language seemed to be one of the main places where the battle was sort of fought out if that makes sense maybe even you maybe you understand this too but um like i you know and again it's about like sort of finding that right way of being armenian you know that 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 purest way um which you know i'm sure you won't be surprised to hear me say like that doesn't exist you know like there is You know no, what's like- funny
0: is uh you know in in our community as you know and uh, you know I spent significant time in Armenian stuff but right. this just kind of weird little uh battle as to how Armenian you are or what is the level of your Armenianness yeah. I mean really I mean if you choose to identify yourself as an Armenian if that's what you want to identify yourself you're an Armenian right. and um so that that to me plays out I think in the musical landscape as well I wanted to ask you a couple more questions. Um, You know, the the first podcast guest that I had, I I picked for a very specific reason, it's because I believe he is one of the most important figures in Armenian music, uh, period, right now. And that's Ada Ding And
2: Oh, yes. Yeah, that was a great. Yeah. Anybody who hasn't and, heard that yet, go listen to it. <laughs> I,
0: I, and the reason I bring him up is because he's a link to the past. He's also yeah. in the present. And he's also a, a, a key to the future. But could you just kind of tell us a little bit about the anecdote that you had uh, mentioned about Yankee Doodle Dandy?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. That's I loved. I loved this so much. So I finally got a chance to talk to Ara Dinkjian, who is like I wasn't just like kidding. Anybody who doesn't who's listening who hasn't had a chance to listen to your amazing interview with him, like please go <laughs> listen to it. Um, so he's a total icon and somebody that I just admire so much. And um, and his dad, of course, Onik um, Dinkjian, who is like such a you know important part of our musical legacy. Um so I finally met somebody who was able to introduce me to him and um and he and I met to have coffee and he's just um I'm sure Rafi as you know I mean he's just so like humble and generous with his time and just you know like a stunning intellect and so I was so excited to like sit down with him and he told me, or we were sharing, uh, if you go to the Library of Congress website, they have this amazing trove of recordings of armenian american um, of Armenian immigrants um, in Fresno. Have you heard these recordings, Rafi?
0: I have. I have. Yeah. Yep. They're, ab- absolutely. Interesting.
2: They're, fan- they're so interesting and there's such a fascinating snapshot of, um, of, you know, the, the music that these immigrants were, were bringing with them. And, and like, if you told them, play me some of your music, like what they would, you know, what they would play and the instruments that they'd use. So anyway, so I had listened to almost all of these obsessively, you know, of course, for my, for my work, but there was one that I had sort of skipped over, it was Yankee Doodle Dandy. <laughs> and and I was like, okay, this is just kind of, you know, um, what's the word? Sort of cheesy. Like, I just thought, okay, this the scholar, the the anthropologist who was working with them probably just wanted to, them to play like, you know, just some Armenian uh, American song and, you know, it was sort of kitschy. And I, and I really didn't, pay much attention to it. And I was so excited to sit down with Ara and sort of like impress him with, you know, all my knowledge or whatever, whatever I was thinking. And he was like, yeah, what about Yankee Doodle? And I was like, yeah, what about it? You know, like just sort of, um, just sort of, you know, thinking that we were both gonna, gonna sort of roll our eyes at it. And he told me, and he was like, yeah, I love it. And I was like, what is he talking about? (laughs) And so I was like, oh, my God, if Ada is telling me to go back and listen to this, I really have to go to it. And really what I, I write about this in the book, but what I loved about it so much when I really gave it a chance was, you know, I realized that I was in the process of ignoring this was imposing my own sort of expectations of these these um this group of people who had immigrated to the United States you know like why shouldn't they play yankee doodle like why why would i think that this wouldn't be part of their own musical identity you know and the fact that like you were you were hearing this being played but in their own interpretation um this is very very cheesy but like it's it was sort of like you know the I, the United States and what it, in what it was intended to be you know like somebody taking a doodle and making it their own in this really really stunning sort of way and um and so I it really opened up a lot of questions about the ways that people negotiate and navigate being both American and Armenian and and um. So yeah, so it was just it was a it's a really really fascinating recording, you know, both as a relic of its time and sort of the ways it forces us to confront what we expect, you know, Armenian music to be or to look like.
0: And I think I, I think the thing that people have to keep in mind is that this recording was done on on the zurna. Is that correct?
2: On zurna, exactly, exactly, yeah.
3: Doodle on the Zurna, which is a very interesting form of, um, I almost said bagpipe, because Mr. Mr. Bedrosian showed me that he could inflate his cheeks, which uh, then acted as a sort of bag. And his his, uh, cheeks do stretch amazingly for many years of playing the Zurna. The Zurna, everyone told me, is an instrument that one should hear out of doors, and it was out of doors that we recorded it. Foregoing was Yankee Doodle, which I am informed is much in demand at Armenian picnics.
2: How about
0: Armenia? Have you been to Armenia?
2: No, I haven't been to Armenia either, and I and I desperately want to. And um, the the place that I do feel the most connection to is Beirut. Like you know, yeah. Armenia and the Ottoman Empire function very, very, you know very, you know, they're, they're these huge presences in my narrative, you know, but in terms of like a physical belonging, you know, Beirut is probably where I have felt that the most. And, and, you know, we're speaking now, like a few days after about a week yeah. after the explosion. Exactly. And, you know, I, it's, dif- I can speak to you about it now. I think maybe today's like the first day that I can talk about it without breaking down, you know, like, so I, I, uh, it's interesting when we think about this question of homelands and, and in academia, like a lot of scholars have said, we're making too much of the homeland question when it comes to diaspora. But I think it's important because it has so much to do with how we orient ourselves. You know what I mean? Like, I, like,
3: oh.
2: what I was, when, you know, growing up in Tulsa, like I mentioned, like, part of what helped me maintain a sense of or help my family main, sort of maintain a sense of our cultural identity was through our affiliations with the middle you know with other middle eastern um immigrants in uh, over there you know so like i couldn't discount the beirut factor in my own understanding of of who i am you know and it's interesting and i know this is not at all unique to me but like if i meet somebody from armenia i have far less of a cultural connection to that person, you know, than I do, like, maybe to somebody from Beirut. Now, that's not to say that I don't have a connection to that person, you know, Um, but it's just, it's so, so incredibly complicated, you know, Um, and uh, yeah, so, so these, the homelands question, I, again, just like what we said about music, like, there's no correct answer here, but I think it's interesting interrogating it, because then, it helps us understand how we how we see ourselves, you know, in the narratives that we're the narratives that we are telling. Like you, Rafi, I mean, do you think where where do you see your home to be?
0: I, I see it in Armenia. And yeah. um, and I'm gonna just kind of let you in on a little secret, I guess now it's gonna be public. And I've never really said this before. Um, so I'll tell it to you on this podcast. Uh-huh. Uh, aside from being riveted by the music when I started my label in 2001, the underlying reason for it is for people like you and me. For, for people that didn't have that connection to what is modern-day Armenia, right. I wanted to bring the diaspora and Armenia completely together through this particular um, dialogue, which is uh-huh. music being recorded in Armenia by new Armenian artists. Oh, that's
2: um, great. Because,
0: I, because I, I always felt like I always felt like you know music was coming out of Beirut, or it was coming out of California, or it was coming out of you know Boston. Like these were like the or New Jersey. These were like the industries that were pumping out these particular recordings. But the only stuff from Armenia at the time was these old Melodia albums, mm-hmm. and then some Rabi stuff that was kind yeah. of yeah. But um, so for me, um, I guess opening up a little bit here. Music is meant a lot because um, it, it's a place where it's an emotional reservoir that I can kind of put certain emotions into. But there is a there's a very distinct purpose as to as to you know doing what I did is because I wanted to I wanted to bridge that gap and make people feel more directly connected to the homeland. Right. Because, because we grew up in the United States and we right. kind of a foreign concept of what an Armenian from Armenia is rather than an Armenian from Beirut or Baghdad or what have you. So, yeah, that's kind of uh so there you go. There's my,
2: I love that. You're, you're, you're
0: I... really good. You're really good. You're a good interrogator. I like it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I, I, I truly love that. I, I think that's so interesting. And I think, you know, again, you know, like our positionality always matters, uh, you know, obviously like the questions that I'm asking, the way I am interpreting this, like has so much to do with, you know, like what we've been talking about with my background in Beirut, growing up in Tulsa. And so, it's very interesting, like the way that people talk about Armenian music from Armenia. I think sometimes the diaspora, you know, again those of us who aren't from Armenia, I think sometimes they they impose a certain expectation of what Armenian music from Armenia should be like. You know, like I think part of the part of the what the diaspora has done is sort of impose this. Um, expectation from Armenia and and I know that there's been so much controversy in the diaspora about around Rabi's music you know like people saying oh that's that's you know it's like that's not what they want to be coming out of Armenia you know and, um, and I know that Rabiz is like you know dated at this point but I find that really interesting what you're saying about you know finding ways of sort of creating a space for the diaspora and Armenia to come come together here because I think the diaspora sort of myth mythification or if I just made up a word of Armenia has really been a disservice to the actual people there you know like they are people who you know have their own they they're yeah. complex and you know like they have their own narratives and cultures and all of that stuff and so. We expect this sort of purity to come be coming from there, a purity that we've defined, you know, as diaspora. And so I'm so glad to hear what you're attempting to do. what
0: would, would it be safe to say, um Sylvia, that we've also mythologized Gomitas, um who's now become <laughs> an icon and and we've yeah. almost forgotten that this was just he was a regular guy. And yeah, um, and yeah, you know, there's a lot of there's a shroud of mystery actually as to. What really happened in Paris? Really, what was his state of mind? And, um, but but what, what do you think about that whole concept of mythologizing Gomitas, for example?
2: Yeah. Um, I'm glad you said that because earlier you asked a question that I totally, like, did not even get to answer because I went off on a tangent. But yeah, what I've been doing, but the thing that I'm working on right now is sort of looking at this mytholo- the mythology surrounding Gomitas and so i would never say i'm a gomidas scholar like i'm not in the archives looking at what gomidas necessarily did i'm looking at the discourse around him like how how people talk about gomidas and and yeah so you know gomidas is very to take you know the 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 in terms of like how he's talked about like there's something very convenient about about gomidas in terms of like these diasporic narratives because you know he he gave us a way of talking about a pure or authentic Armenian music. and And I think we've done a disservice to the to the wide ranging and very complex work that he actually did, you know, by sort of flattening um, his output to to this one very specific need that the diaspora has or that even Armenia has maybe. You know, in sort of proving this sort of purity, and um, and you know, I think Gomidas, where we owe it to Gomidas to to look at what we've done with his memory. You know, we've and 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 when I say what we've done with his memory, I mean this man is a saint, right? Like, I mean, Rafi, you know, I, they're all over the diaspora. Like, you see. Um, you know you see monuments in his honor like he just had we just celebrated his 150th birthday right and um mm-hmm. and so uh which was a m- monumental event i mean unesco even recognized this this date as you know part of its uh, cultural events calendar and so gomidas has been very been 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 put to a very certain use, you know, by um, by many institutions and um, and again, sort of like what I was saying about like the purging of Turkish, like it's something that I have a lot of, I empathize with, like I understand this, and there's this anecdote that I often tell when it comes to Gomidas, where. I, uh, I'll never forget the first time I heard Gurung, um, it was in Tulsa and I was, you know, maybe 10 or 11 years old. And we were at the small community that we had, like every April, April 24, we would do a, uh, um, genocide commemoration. And at one of these commemorations, you know, my parents had dragged me to, um, they, somebody put on a recording of Gurung and I, you know, I'm sure Rafi, you have these moments, these musical memories that you have where sort of the world stops and you're just like, live in whatever it is that you're hearing, you know? And I will never forget this moment when I heard Gurung for the for the very first time. And I looked at my dad and he was crying and my mom was crying, you know? And, and shortly after that, I learned about Gomidas and how he, he was, you know, arrested and, you know, they didn't kill him, but he died, you know? from this mental breakdown you know like so there was like this sort of mythology around him that was passed down to me and and it was through that moment it was through hearing Gurung that sort of the the reality of the genocide hit me like in that moment you know like even though I was so young like it's like I finally got it you know it was through through that sound that I finally understood and it and it just and it like it broke me you know and so as much as I can sit here as a scholar and critique and, and deconstruct like the, the mythology around Gomidas, it's something that I also hold very dear. You know, like the fact that this, this man, you know, saved our culture in, in some ways. Like listen to just even how I talk about it, you know, like it's something that as a scholar I should totally take apart. You know, so again, I think it's important to honor the simultaneity, you know, where on the one hand, you know, I can sort of look at it more critically and see how we've used his memory to serve a very sort of almost nationalistic um, narrative, but on the other hand, how important he really is to our understanding of ourselves and, and and our history and our culture. I hope that makes sense.
0: It does. Of course it makes sense. And have you heard the Zabel Panosian version of it?
2: Oh my God. Again, it, another one of those musical moments when I heard that, I was like, why do we not know this version? <laughs> what do you think about it?
0: I had Ian Nagoski uh, as one of my guests. And uh-huh. uh, I, I, I mean, I don't want to be too dramatic about this. Yeah. But I, I, I'm like, I've never heard this version before. This is, I almost froze. Yes. And I had to kind of think of, because it's so different
2: than yeah. the arrangement
0: that Gomidas basically put together.
2: Yeah. And
0: so many other people. That her source was actually the original folk song, whereas we're sourcing Gomidas's arrangement. So for me, it was incredible. I think the the vocal, um, the the vocal performance in there is so unusual. The arrangement is so unusual, and there's something again about listening to the crackles and the pops uh, yes. on that. And to think that that was done a hundred and three years ago yes. it, is mind blowing.
2: I got I, I, the first time I heard the Zabel recording. I, I, honest to God, had chills. You know, partly, you know, part of partly because, just like you said, like the beauty of it, her voice, the haunting. You know, her voice is so haunting, and the crackles. You know, like all of that plays into sort of the sort of aesthetic um, effect that that it that it has, and and but also coupled with the versions of Gurung that we normally hear. You know, like the most the version that is the most sort of that Armenians are sort of the most proud of is the Isabel Bayrak version, which right. is fit for yeah. a concert hall, you know, but a concert hall in Europe, you know. I mean, this is like this goes along with what I was saying earlier about sort of like the aligning of our music with what the West, you know, like um, and so, you know, not that Zabel's version isn't any, you know, that in itself is quite operatic, you know, but it takes, us aesthetically, it takes us somewhere a little bit different than the Daryan version. And then at the same time, there's the George Magurditchian version that he plays on the Oud without any lyrics, you know. So, like, so where does that, you know, where does that take us, you know. So in this piece that I'm working on, I'm, I'm thinking about, like, where the Daryan version takes us, where Zabel's version takes us, and where's where the Magurditchian version takes us, you know, in terms of, like, what it says about our Armenian narratives, you know, what is it to hear Gurung, maybe the most iconic Armenian song, you know, that exists. What is it to hear that on the oud, you know, um, and without any lyrics? Like, I think that has a very different effect on, on, on us than, again, like the Bayrak, you know, the Bayrak version, which is gorgeous, you know, but, you know, which one do we want to have as like the public face of, um, of Armenians, you know?
0: Um, hey, uh, Sylvia, wow, um, it is it is amazing to speak with you, um, Doctor Alajaji, I should say. Um, oh no. <laughs> you know, I I but I, I and I say that I say that because, you know, um, I, I, there's another friend of mine that I've got, uh, Doctor Melissa Bilal, uh-huh. who I actually worked with, and you know, it's really amazing to see this new kind of generation of ethnomusicologists. Um, breaking new ground and making us think in ways that we haven't thought before. Um, I loved your book. Um, I, I love the fact that a kid from Tulsa, Oklahoma, <laughs> um, li- listening to mixtapes and going to school uh, has now you know, emerged as a, a major voice.
3: Thank and you, basically Afi. going ahead
0: and, and conveying what Armenian music is. And um, so thank you so much for that. I, I, I found your book to be profound.
2: Thank and you. I'm so
0: looking forward to what is next um, from you because um, you know I, I just I just love listening to you know really smart people that we can all learn from and um, so it's well, really. Well, I mean, we to. owe
2: you like for giving like for starting this and and you know giving us a platform to talk about these questions. I think in this very sort of unfiltered um, way, I think you're doing a profound service for 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 us too.
0: So I just wanted to say thank you so much for everything and good luck with your work moving forward. And um, I hope one of these days we can see you in Yerevan as well.
2: Yes, absolutely. I would, I would, I would love that so much.
0: All right. Take care.
2: Thank you, Raffi.
0: Bye-bye. This concludes my conversation with Sylvia Alajaji. I met Sylvia Alajaji by email a few years back when she asked me to include a track from the Hover Chamber Choir of Armenia's album, Armenian Voices, from the Pomegranate Music Catalog, is a part of a multimedia element for her book, Music and the Armenian Diaspora. If you get a chance, try to pick up that book and put it in your library. It's a fantastic read. It's kind of strange to think that the music we listen to now, or when we were younger, will at some point be part of a historical timeline and put into perspective. When we're in the moment, we really don't think of it from those terms. But look at us today, talking about Sabal Panosyan, Richard Halgopian, Adis Harmandian, and Harut Pambukchan, amongst others. Their music represents our history, our memories. They've been part of the healing process of our people and our nation, or nations. I'm glad that there are people like Sylvia Alajaji around to give us perspective. And for that, I thank her. Some of the music heard earlier on this podcast include Adis Harmandian's Karun Karun, released as a single in 1972 on the A-Disc record label in Lebanon. Udist and vocalist Richard Agopian and the Keftime band performed a Turkish song called Konyala, originally released on the Saha record label in 1968 under the original album title Keftime Time." Las Vegas. It's now available on the traditional Crossroads record label by Hagopian's son Harold and has been repackaged under the CD Kef Time, Exciting Sounds of the Middle East. Incidentally, this song is primarily associated with Ottoman Greeks, but has been absorbed into the Armenian Kef culture due to the popularity of the Kef Time band. Finally, We had a 1939 recording of Yankee Doodle Dandy performed by Joe Bedrosian on the Zurna as part of field recordings by Sidney Robinson Cowell. This recording can be accessed for free on the Library of Congress website. Closing out our program for today is everybody's favorite song about a stuffed pumpkin. You can't make this stuff up. From 1983 on Pico Records, Here's how to Chan's version of Rapama. Rapama. <laughs> hey, John Rapama, Hammer
3: of Rapama. Hey, John Rapama, Hammer of Rapama. շակարլեցրեցին, թոների մեջ է կախեցին, եկան էլ հերը ուհորկուր, եկան էլ մեր հիմորկուր, եկան կերի կերագին, խնամի ու տեքերի գին, եկան սանիկ սանամեր, հազնախ գորով հազնախ մեր, եկան էլ մուտիկ է հերավեր, Ha ha Terteri terteri ter Hey can kafama ham oldu kafama hey can kafama ham oldu kafama hey can kafama Afa mahe, ja afa ma, afohto afa ma. Gitararasiye hoki angosh tum. Ya sinchanem, inchanem, harur hokunum mera tum. Ye ganer meri umar Hey Jan, 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 Rapa Hey Jan, Rapa Ma, Hamohto,
0: Harmandian, Richard Hagopian, and Haru Pambukjan can be downloaded on any reputable digital platform. This is a Pomegranate Music Production.